Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the very latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. It's the News Roundup. I'm Nyla Boodoo of Axios Today, in for Jen White. Let's get into it. This week's news will affect millions and millions of Americans. The price of insulin, the end of emergency SNAP benefits, the future of student loan forgiveness. While the Supreme Court debates student loan forgiveness, Congress is taking extra steps to examine U.S. relations with China. In the media, the latest on the $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit against cable channel Fox News. But let's start back at the beginning. Joining us from New York is Mary Harris, the host and managing editor at What Next, a daily news podcast from Slate. Happy Friday, Mary. Hey, great to be here. And Washington, Benji Sarlin, Washington bureau chief at Semaphore. Benji, welcome back. Thanks so much. And John Yang. John is the new anchor for PBS News Weekend and a correspondent for the PBS NewsHour. John, thanks for joining us. Nyla, great to be here. Let's start with a medical game changer. On Wednesday, Eli Lilly, one of the world's biggest pharmaceutical companies, announced it's capping the price of its insulin to $35 a month at most retail pharmacies. That's slashing the price of its most widely prescribed insulin by 70 percent. And big news for the roughly 8 million Americans who use insulin daily to treat diabetes. Some have had to ration their dosage because of the cost and in adequate insurance coverage. And it comes at a time when the Biden administration has pressed the industry to rein in prices, which have recently skyrocketed. Benji, this insulin cap has been a long ask of government officials. Why now? Well, the political pressure has just increased and increased. And there's been some real breakthroughs in the last year that may have convinced the folks in the pharmaceutical industry that they have to just get ahead of them or inevitably they will be forced to probably. So uh, an example is there already is an insulin cap now that was passed last year uh, that restricts, um, that caps insulin prices at $35 per month within Medicare. Now, the uh, Congress wanted to broaden that to everything, to essentially force Eli Lilly to do what it's doing now and cap uh, monthly costs of insulin, but they didn't have the votes. Now, what's interesting, though, is they did have seven Republicans in the Senate who crossed party lines to support this measure. So this is definitely a, a political issue that was breaking outside of the usual partisan boundaries already, where you had people like Josh Hawley, you know, on the more kind of populist Trump side, and Susan Collins on the more kind of moderate establishment side, um, willing to break ranks and tell pharmaceutical companies, hey, if you don't get your act together on this, we are going to come after you. So the pressure has really been mounting, and there's just there's no sign there's any political downside for a politician who talks about this issue. It polls extremely well. We didn't even plan this, Benji, but we have tape of Senator uh, Schumer and Josh Hawley. Let's listen to that. They could have done this years ago. They didn't do it because they weren't forced to do it, because they liked making all of those profits off of the backs of people who are desperate for insulin and have to have it literally in order to live. While I hope other manufacturers follow suit, there's no substitute for locking this down as mandatory and permanent for all Americans. 
That was Republican Senator Josh Hawley and Democratic Senator Chuck Schumer. John, as Benji mentioned, you don't often see these two on the same page. How does this now factor in this bipartisan support uh, to efforts, including Republican efforts, to dismantle the Inflation Reduction Act? Well, the White House, of course, is pouncing on this, saying this is why the Republicans shouldn't be trying to to uh, dismantle the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, I mean, insulin has been the poster child or the poster drug for people who want to talk about the greed of big pharma. Uh, And uh, I don't think any politician in any party uh, loses votes or risks anything by going after big pharma, which is why you're hearing some bipartisan uh, support for this. Uh, This is um, a, a drug that people rely on uh, millions of people rely on to function normally day in, day out. And the insurance companies, if you have a high deductible uh, insurance plan, you could be paying up to $1,000 a year, uh, all front-loaded at the beginning of the year uh, before the deductibles kick in. So I think I think you're going to see the, the White House seize on this, as uh, um, especially as the president uh, is moving forward to what he says is going to be a re-election campaign. I think you can just be the Republicans, uh, I'm sorry, the Democrats seizing on this uh, as an, another deliverable for the American people. Eli Lilly's CEO was David Ricks. ABC News pressed him on whether this price decrease was a long-term move. You know, we haven't rolled out a guarantee, but what I'll say is over the last five years, we've frozen list prices and cut them. This is a dramatic cut, but the trend is definitely down. Except for our newest products, you know, we're researching new insulins and many people with diabetes would say they need better ones. Mary, Ricks also told reporters that this price cut, quote, should be the new standard in America. How optimistic should we be that we'll see other drug companies fall in line here? Well, I think this will certainly increase the pressure on Sanofi and Novo Nordisk, who are the other insulin suppliers, to decrease their prices. But the thing that really stands out to me about what happened this week is something that John was saying there about just like what low-hanging fruit this was. Like just think about all the pressure that built up around this one drug over years to get us to this point where one company that makes this one drug, and there are two others, decides to set this limit on pricing. Like, I can just take off a zillion things that have happened. Like, California is saying they're going to make their own insulin. You know, that was sort of looming in the background. You have, like, as soon as Elon Musk took over Twitter, you had someone impersonating the Eli Lilly Twitter account saying, you know, insulin is free now. There are all of these moments that just sort of built up on this pressure on this one drug. And what's happening here is not going to affect those other companies, and it's not going to affect other drugs. And there's, like, kind of a bigger structural thing happening here. And you could hear Rick's getting it to it, getting to it there where he talked about, you know, we're going we're gonna to keep making insulin products. We're going to keep improving. That allows them to raise the prices. And so there's nothing here that's saying they're going to, you know, keep all insulin at a certain level for all time. This is their decision, their decision about some of their products. And it's not, it's not solving the bigger issue. So to me, that's, that's the real thing that stands out about this week. Not everyone sold on the narrative this week that the move to cut the price of insulin is a big deal. An editorial from The Wall Street Journal said this without naming a source, quote, the best industry analysis suggests three in four patients pay less than $30 out of pocket for insulin. Eli Lilly noted in its press release that same as before, every, anyone who doesn't have insurance can, quote, immediately download an online coupon for $35 a month in insulin. Mary, what validity do you give that argument? 
I, I mean, yes, it's true. You can do these complicated things and jump through hoops to save money on your insulin. You know, you can do it a bunch of different ways. You can do it for a bunch of different drugs, right? But it that puts the onus on the consumer, right? If I need that insulin, I need to go find the way that's going to make it cheaper. It's pretty easy, yes, but there are still people who are not being served. And so I, I do think that there still remains this larger issue about drug pricing. And we should ask, like, who is doing that work? And if you are a drug consumer, you know that when you have something expensive, you have to go buy. It's you who's doing the work to find, is there a coupon? Is there something else? Benji, how likely is it that this, to Mary's point, that this translates into movement on other drug prices? Um, well, some of it depends on what's happening in the private sector. Some of it depends on what's happening in terms of regulations, in terms of new laws. But certainly when one company makes a dramatic move, even if it's, you know, as mentioned, has limitations, only applies to some drugs, that obviously puts tremendous pressure on the other companies to do the same or, you know, face public attack for not doing so and more questioning for why they aren't. Um, it also builds momentum potentially, um, if, especially if they don't follow through, for, again, more legislation, more regulations targeting this specific issue. So there, this is definitely not the last we've heard of this issue, I'm pretty sure. Millions of Americans who received extra government help with grocery bills during the pandemic are about to see that aid shrink. Emergency SNAP benefits expired at the end of last month. Vince Hall from the charity Feeding America laid out what that means when he spoke to C-SPAN last month. The number of people that are going to see serious reductions in their SNAP benefits next month is 32 million people. That's almost 10 percent of the entire U.S. population. So beginning next month, $3 billion a month of food purchasing power is just going to disappear from the American economy with the termination of these emergency allotments. John, the USDA says these payments were only ever meant to be temporary, but do we know what effect they've had? They have helped uh, during the pandemic, helped people a great deal. I mean, you've got a lot of these temporary benefit boosts that are going to go start going away, like SNAP benefits, and also expanded uh, eligibility for Medicaid will end when the, uh, the, the COVID emergency ends. Um, it's very difficult for the government to take benefits away from people, to take something away, and whether there's going to be a push to make some of these uh, permanent, it, 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 I think there will be calls to make it permanent, whether they're the votes in Congress to do it or not is the question. Before we go to break, here's a message we got from Patricia who says, Yesterday, I picked up a prescription. I paid $6 with my insurance. A note on the prescription said the retail price was $99. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. Let's get back to the news roundup and let's turn to student loans. The U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments in two cases this week that will determine the fate of President Biden's student debt forgiveness plan. In the first case facing the court, Nebraska v. Biden, the conservative justices seem skeptical that Congress has given clear authorization for the Biden administration to forgive billions in student debt. Here's an exchange between U.S. Solicitor General Elizabeth Preliger making the case for the Biden administration and Chief Justice Roberts. You know, Congress itself has provided for loan discharge and other circumstances in response to borrower hardship. It's included provisions in the Higher Education Act for bankruptcy, for example, or for total disability um, or school closure, other kinds of hardships. You think because there's a provision to allow waiver when your school closes 
that because of that, Congress shouldn't have been surprised when half a trillion dollars is wiped off the books? Benji, how important is just this issue? Does the Biden administration have authority to do this versus Congress? Well, we're about to find out. There's a lot of skepticism on the court that the Biden administration has this authority. Um, One of the big questions is, first of all, whether there's even standing to sue the Biden administration. If it does survive, it might be under what, you know, you might call it procedural technicality there, in which there may be some interest from conservative justices in the idea that the state suing can't prove that they were harmed by this. But assuming it gets past there... um, There seems to be a fear among justices, especially on the conservative side of the bench, that the administration is taking what may be an authority that on paper is granted to them and expanding it so widely that it runs into what they call the major questions doctrine, which is the idea that if you are trying to do something as big as, say, you know, moving upwards of half a trillion dollars in federal money then you should probably go through Congress. That is a question for the people. It's probably not best for the White House. Now, that is also a very wishy-washy, subjective idea, major questions. It seems like something that you could apply to anything. Uh, And so there's also some concern about overreach in that direction. Um, But in general, yeah, they better have a backup plan because there's a very good chance they won't get away with this. John, the Biden administration has been citing the Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students or the HEROES Act as the core of their argument, what case are they making? They're saying that this is explicitly um, granted, authorization is granted by the law, just as uh, Kagan, uh, one of the three liberal justices, kept making the point. She says, you know, a lot of times we're asked to interpret laws that are kind of confusing. She said, this law is very clear. But the conservative justices aren't buying that. I think you heard uh, five of the justices Argue about two words in the bill in the in the law, which are uh, waive and modify. They say this is not a waiver, this is not a modification, this is an entirely new program. And as Benji pointed out, they really say this is a major issue that uh, deserves explicit co- congressional authorization. You heard the chief justice there describe it as a half a trillion dollar program. I think he always I, in the oral arguments. I'm trying. I should have gone back and counted. Uh, I don't think he described it any other way uh, than a half a trillion dollar program. The other term we're hearing a lot is MOHILA. That's the Higher Education Loan Authority of the state of Missouri. That was routinely brought up by the Nebraska Solicitor General James Campbell. Benji, what's MOHILA and why is this significant? So MOHILA is a uh, Missouri institution that handles uh, loans over there. And it's very significant to the standing question. Um, because uh, the attorney generals arguing that the um, student debt plan should be overturned have tried to argue that they are harmed because it affects their own student loan program. Now, one thing that gr- was greeted with some skepticism, including by uh, Amy Coney Barrett on the more one of the Republican appointed justices, is that Mohila itself is not suing. Um, it is, you know, a, a state's attorney generals suing, claiming on their behalf. But this is an institution that could theoretically launch its own lawsuit, and it decided not to. Justice Sotomayor also pushed back against claims from conservative justices, um, to your point, John, about how much all of this is costing and reflected on the impact of the plan for millions of Americans. There's a 50 million students who are... Uh, will benefit from this, who today will struggle 
many of them don't have assets sufficient to bail them out after the pandemic. And what you're saying is now we're going to give judges the right to decide how much aid to give them. So, Mary, what's the timeline here for the Supreme Court case and expected decisions? Well, big decisions usually come down in June, so it's probably going to be a little while. But I just want to say one thing before we leap off of this topic, which is I don't think we should blow past this issue of standing and whether these cases actually have any right to be in the court at all, because that's such a big deal. If the conservative justices kind of blow past the question of standing and get right into this issue of like, does the president actually have the ability in the HEROES Act to do what he's done? That's a big deal. Because to get to the Supreme Court, theoretically, you have to prove that there's some injury to you. And the two cases here, you've got a case where it's a couple of individuals who are basically saying, I have student debt. I wish I could be part of this program. I should have been able to make comments. And there's like a real question of what is your – like why would it be that we should blow up this program for you? You actually want debt relief. That doesn't make sense. So that's one thing. And then with the bigger case with the attorneys general from around the country – You know, the the real focus is on Mohila, as you said, and this agency that they have that administers student debt. But even Amy Coney Barrett had this moment at the arguments where she said, why isn't Mohila here? If they're the ones who are injured and therefore you have standing, then why aren't they here defending it? Because they are actually explicitly saying we don't want to be there. We don't want to make this argument. And the state of Missouri is kind of coming in and bigfooting and saying, well, we think they have an injury. And so that's a really big question to get past before you get to the merits of what the conservative side is arguing here. And there are real questions even from the conservative side about whether standing applies here. John, I want to go back to what Benji said earlier. Is there a backup plan for the Biden administration if this doesn't go through? It's not clear. They aren't talking about any backup plan publicly. They're saying they're confident that their position will be upheld by the Supreme Court. But as Benji pointed out, there there is talk uh, about using another law, the Higher Education Act, HEA, uh, as the basis for some sort of loan forgiveness program. But because this is not an emergency, it would have to go through a lengthy uh, comment period. They'd have to propose a rule. They'd have to have public comment uh, for a period of time. And then they'd have to to analyze uh, those comments before they come up with a final rule, final rule. It would be time-consuming. And it would also beg the same question uh, about whether the Higher Education Act, in the view of these conservative justices, uh, specifically authorizes it. This is, you know, this... It is a semantic. Uh, it is all semantics, as Benji says. But this is right in the wheelhouse of the sort of the favorite issues of the conservative justices in this supermajority is that they feel that the executive branch has gotten too powerful and that regulatory agencies and cabinet agencies have gotten too powerful and are overinterpreting. Uh, the congressional authority that they've been given. Let's turn to China. There's a new bipartisan group in Congress, the House Select Committee on the Strategic Competition between the United States and the Chinese Communist Party. Yes, that is the full name. The committee met on Tuesday. It's led by Republican Representative Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin. Here's what he said on NPR's Morning Edition in December. We don't have a quarrel with the Chinese people, and the Chinese people are often the primary victim of CCP oppression and repression. 
So, Benji, what happened at this committee hearing this week then? So this was sort of the table setting for the work that this committee is going to be doing. It was less about uh, producing some shocking new revelation and investigation, say, and more about uh, trying to do a very public, indeed even on primetime television, um, case to the American people that there are a variety of different ways that China and particularly the Communist Party that runs China um, are a direct threat to American interests. So to that effect, they were touching on lots of different things at once. They were talking about um, economically that a lot of uh, manufacturing is tied up in China, including on, you know, critical materials we need, um, you know, things like, for example, advanced chips, which has been a major concern in Washington. And so that's a concern. They've talked about the human rights angle of China's uh, surveillance of its own people and suppression of its ethnic minorities and persecution and the ways that that could uh, factor in. And even how some of that connects to um operations within the U.S. potentially. And then there's, you know, the threat to Taiwan uh, and, you know, threats to U.S. interests abroad uh, in, in from a national security sense. So it was just kind of a laundry list presentation to the American people with figures that they hoped had broad bipartisan credibility that you need to take China seriously because it's Congress's top priority and they're going to explain exactly why they're doing what they're doing. Let's turn to the House Armed Services Committee, which held a hearing Tuesday about U.S. funding to Ukraine. China came up rather unexpectedly. Here's a clip of the hearing where GOP Representative Matt Gates is questioning the Undersecretary of Defense, Colin Call. Any reason to disagree with that assessment? Dr. Is this the, I'm sorry, is this the Global Times from China? No, this is, well. That's what you read. Yeah, it might be. Yeah. Would that be a reason? Uh, I, you... I, as a general matter, I don't take Beijing's propaganda. Well, no, no. Yeah, but just value. tell me if the, if the allegation is true or false. I mean, uh, it... I don't have any evidence one way or the okay. other. As a general matter, I don't take Beijing's propaganda at face value. Fair, fair enough. I would agree with that assessment. Mary, what happened at this hearing? So this was a hearing dealing with the oversight of funding for the war in Ukraine. And you saw Matt Gates sort of asking a lot about whether the U.S. has provided military assistance to a particular paramilitary unit in Ukraine. And when this undersecretary he was talking to denied the U.S. had done that, you know, Matt Gates entered into the congressional record a report from an outlet called the Global Times, which had claimed that the U.S. had supplied this battalion with weapons. And it was this moment where the undersecretary realized, hearing the name of the publication, that this is a publication from China that is controlled by the Chinese government. And it was sort of this gotcha moment of him saying, you are using propaganda from China while you're questioning me. And it's a real question of like, did Gates know this ahead of time? It seems clear he didn't. And how did he get to the point of sort of accidentally pushing this propaganda into the congressional record? Probably a mistake. But, you know, if you'd read the full article, it went on to accuse the U.S. of conniving with neo-Nazi forces in Eastern Europe. So clearly there was stuff <laughs> to take issue with here. So it was just a weird, one of those weird moments at the Capitol. Benji, how much are we going to see China dominate any hearing, regardless of whether it has to do with Ukraine or not? Uh with House, with the House especially? A lot. Uh, China has become the one big issue that it seems both parties can agree on. Um, Democrats have made it a top priority. The Biden administration has made it a top priority. Republicans have made it a top priority. It's allowed both sides to enact major policies where in the past there's been total gridlock. So, for example, you know, the Chips and Science Act, which is, you know, putting 
hundreds of billions of dollars into major investments in domestic manufacturing and research and science that, you know, if that were proposed, you know, 10 years ago under Obama would have been called socialism. But because you could argue, well, we need to boost ourselves against China, there was a breakthrough and you got pretty broad bipartisan support in crafting and voting on this bill. Um, Similarly, uh, pretty much every committee seems to touch on China in some way, whether it's involving the economy, whether it's involving technology, whether it's involving social media, whether, you know, just going up and down the list. Um, Especially because Congress does not seem likely to pass a lot of other things, given that it has divided rule right now between Democrats and Republicans, you're really likely to see a lot of focus on China. Let's turn to a $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit against Fox News. On Monday, Fox chairman Rupert Murdoch announced that multiple hosts of the network promoted false claims of election fraud in the 2020 presidential election. Court documents also reveal Murdoch admitted he could have stopped his hosts from making these claims, but he didn't. Fox is being sued by the voting machine company Dominion Voting Systems. John, what are the implications of Murdoch's admission? Well, the legal implications, according to the uh, the First Amendment and the, the press lawyers I've heard discuss this, uh, can be pretty big. I mean, he's acknowledging that they knew the things that they were saying on the air were false. Uh, they knew they were wrong, but they said them anyway. Uh, and then in other uh, uh, depositions... Uh, Murdoch says a lot of things there, or actually emails and records have been released uh, in discovery that have him talking about the Republican Party as we. He talks about we have to hold on to the Senate. Um, it does make him sound as if the, as if he looks at Fox News uh, as an arm of the Republican Party that could be this could all be trouble for him in, in uh, down the road. Mary, what consequences could Fox face for knowingly spreading misinformation? Well, I mean, obviously, this is a $1.6 billion lawsuit. So that is a major consequence they could face. Defamation's hard to prove, but there it is. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest news. Before we go to break, a quick note about one of Netflix's most watched series ever, Stranger Things. The popular show will be moving from the screen to the stage. Netflix announced plans this week for the play Stranger Things The First Shadow. It's a prequel to the TV show and will premiere in London later this year. Tickets aren't included in your Netflix subscription. They go on sale this spring. We've got plenty more still ahead on the News Roundup. Stay with us. Let's get back to the roundup. Let's move towards another figure in Republican politics, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. HarperCollins released DeSantis's new book this week. It's called The Courage to be Free, Florida's Blueprint for America's Revival. John, what can we expect from this book? Well, I think you can expect um, DeSantis. This is sort of a long line of uh, candidates or presidential hopefuls who publish books in advance to, to lay out their their policies, to sh- uh, try to uh, see show that they're big thinkers, that they think big thoughts. Uh, in DeSantis's case, I think that some of his supporters are hoping that he would humanize himself in this book. I think that they fear that his image uh, is of the stern governor in Florida who's chastising the Walt Disney Company or 
yelling at school kids for wearing masks at a, at a, photo, a photo op. Um, I think he's also trying, obviously, for the 2024 race to position himself as the candidate who offers Trumpism uh, without the baggage of, of Donald Trump. Benji, who is this book for? Who's the audience? Uh, well, for Republican voters outside Florida who are maybe getting acquainted with DeSantis, have heard about him uh, in the press, especially in conservative media, but are still just sort of tuning in, thinking about him as a presidential candidate, it's one way to uh, start to reach out to them. It's also a convenient uh, way to go about and tour the country promoting it, uh, getting a bunch of interviews in conservative media. Ronald DeSantis, uh, so Ron DeSantis, you know, virtually ignores any other kind of media. Um, he He's touring Iowa to promote the book. It gives you an excuse to go do uh, effect, uh, essentially a proto-campaign in the states that matter in the uh, Republican primaries. So there's definitely a lot of utility, which is why, you know, just about everyone exploring a run for president, you know, seems to do something like this with a book. Uh, but yeah, and it's certainly useful for us reporters trying to get a sense of how he is positioning himself and how he would sell himself as a presidential candidate. As you mentioned, he was also in the headlines because state lawmakers have reigned in control the Disney company has over its Orlando-based theme park, Disney World. Here's Governor DeSantis before signing the new law Monday. How do you give one theme park its own government and then treat all the other theme parks differently? And so we believe that um, that that was not good policy. We believe being joined at the hip with this one California-based company was not something that was justifiable or sustainable. Disney's going to be treated like SeaWorld is treated or like any of these others. And that's really uh, the, the, the fair thing to do. So now a state-appointed board will oversee municipal services within the theme park. Mary, so what exactly was taken away from Disney here? Well, it's kind of interesting because last year DeSantis talked about, you know, taking away this special tax status that Disney had. And actually, they, they realized when they tried to do that, that that would require taxpayers in other counties to pick up the tab for Disney World services like fire protection and policing and road maintenance. So the decision was made, like, instead, we're going to try to replace these members of the board of the special tax district. So I think that's important to remember. I think the other thing that's really important to remember about this move is that it's petty, like, so Ron DeSantis is very clear about why he's doing this, which is, you know, having his folks in charge of this special tax district. He's doing it because employees at Disney spoke out after the so-called Don't Say Gay bill, you know, other – he would prefer we call it the Parental Rights and Education Act after that was passed. I say it's petty because it's not that Disney or its employees came in and stopped that bill from actually passing. It passed. It is it is the law of the land in Florida. It's just that speaking out against it was so threatening that DeSantis is now coming in and trying to take more control over the company. I think it's important to point out because he's saying this is his motivation here. That is like a straight up authoritarian motivation to have. So I just, as people think about what's happening here, I just think it's important to focus in on that a lot and think like, huh, what's going on here? Because there is an argument, like he would make the argument, I think DeSantis would make the argument that he's taking away some corporate welfare from a big company and that that's a good thing. Maybe. But it's interesting to hear how he's couching it, which is explicitly saying this corporation is out of control. They're saying things I don't like and therefore I'm intervening. 
Benji, how would do we see this affecting Disney's operations? Could it? Will it affect it? Um, well, Disney has said that they'll continue to do Disney stuff. They have not said that they're going to have some imminent disaster as a result of this. Um, but it already has had indirectly at least some effects um this fight was at least partially seen as a reason for disney's ceo's exit um you know it was it was not going very well and a lot of shareholders are not very happy with how them getting involved in politics went in this case even though they were under a lot of political pressure to get involved in the first place um so you could definitely see some changes going forward there that disney and other corporations might as desantis intended be more wary about getting involved in some of these fights. Let's move to Chicago. John, there was a big election this week. I wonder if you can remind us first about Mayor Lori Lightfoot, the first black woman and first openly gay person to lead Chicago. She won her first term in 2019 after promising to end decades of corruption and backroom dealing at City Hall. But she lost. What about this? What about her did not appeal to Chicagoans this time? It really was a stunning uh, outcome. I mean, the last time she faced voters before this week, uh, she got 73% of the vote. On Tuesday, she got 17. Now, granted, the 73 was in a two-person race. 17 was in a nine-person race, but still, it's 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 quite a fall. She, I think the, the big problem for her is that... Uh, uh, COVID, I think uh, uh, the the restrictions that the, that Chicago had to put in for COVID were not popular. Uh, but I think her biggest problem was that she ran as a progressive in 2019 and then governed as a moderate. She did not follow through on some of the promises she made uh, in the 2019 uh, campaign. For instance, she talked about having an independent school board, which is now still appointed by the mayor. She was slow in putting in civilian uh, a, a council to uh, oversee the police department. Um, and also, I think that, that the, uh, the increase in crime um, and violent crime in Chicago also uh, is haunting her. Um, and I think that that you've you've got in the in the runoff, you've got these two candidates, two nominally democratic candidates who have polar opposite views uh, on what to do about crime. Uh, Paul Vallis uh, says he wants to he wants more cops on the street. Brandon Johnson says more cops is not the answer. The answer is to address the root causes of crime. So it's I think it's a division you're going to see among Democrats more and more as crime uh, in cities uh, becomes a pro- an issue. So, John, if she was the progressive candidate who took a moderate stance and more moderate candidates won, what does that say about Chicago? I think Chicago, it's very interesting because I, it, I, you know, I used to live in Chicago and, and, and I've been talking a lot to my old neighbors and friends. What happened is, is that the crime, which uh, violent crime, shootings, carjackings and that sort of thing, which had happened mostly on the south side, have spread into the north side. Uh, and that the, that liberal uh, liberals who live on the lakeshore uh, in uh, the north side of Chicago, predominantly white north north side of Chicago, uh, to them, crime is suddenly a big issue. They see it as, uh, as spreading. And even if they haven't experienced it directly themselves, they've heard of someone who has. And they fear that it's coming to their neighborhoods. And I think that is what uh, what prompted a lot of support for Paul Vallis, who really did very, very well uh, on the north side of Chicago. 
Benji, to that point about crime, how much is this race another bellwether for Democrats and how they're going to message or fight crime going into 2024? Well, we're seeing a pretty consistent theme all over the place, which is that all the momentum seemed to be towards um, police reform, towards the idea that we had uh, gone too far in over-incarcerating people uh, heading into the 2020 election. And a lot of the reason for that was that there had been a three-decade decline in crime, essentially, that was, it was at very historically low levels, including in a lot of cities, not Chicago quite as much, but a lot of major cities like New York, where it had been a terrible problem in the 70s, 80s, 90s um, that had been mitigated. Now that crime shot up during the pandemic, we're seeing, and there's been these protests, which ended up being very politically divisive around the country, around George Floyd's death, uh, the politics have been shifting in a major way. Um, and we saw a taste of this just this week when, and just yesterday, when President Biden, in a pretty shocking move, given what he'd said before on this topic, decided he would allow Congress to overrule Washington, D.C. to pass their own criminal reform bill, um, say, essentially saying that we are Congress is going to step in and prevent you from deciding what criminal penalties should be in your own district. Um, this is something Democrats who, you know, have almost universally been supporting D.C. statehood have said they would not do in almost any circumstance. Um, so I think that gives an impression of just how much the National Party is concerned about this right now. One news update for you. Disgraced South Carolina attorney Alex Murdoch has been sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He was convicted on Thursday for the murders of his wife, Margaret, and their youngest son, Paul. Let's move to one final story. A group of bipartisan senators is introducing a bill aimed at making our railroads safer. That's after a train carrying hazardous chemicals derailed in East Palestine, Ohio, last month. The derailment concerns residents of the town who fear the impact of the chemicals on the environment and their health. We did a show on the derailment, which you can find at the1a.org. Mary, what's included in this new bill? So this new bill increases it strengthens notification and inspection requirements for trains carrying hazardous materials. It increases fines for safety violations by rail carriers. It authorizes $27 million for research on safety improvements. It doesn't dictate major regulatory changes. It leaves that to the transportation department, but it does make some big shifts. So the Biden administration, especially Secretary Buttigieg, has faced criticism for its handling of the derailment. Benji, does this make things right? What is the Biden administration doing to try to make things right? Well, the way that our reporter Jordan Weissman, who's been covering this closely, has put it is that there's essentially a two-track conversation going on around this rail disaster, which is there's this one very politicized track, which is there's been a lot of attacks on Pete Buttigieg, especially from Republicans and President Biden, arguing that they should have been more personally involved. They should have been visiting. Uh, Perhaps there's something they could have done. And then there's been this other track, which is that despite all that criticism, what the Biden administration wants, what Pete Buttigieg wants, and what a Republican senator from Ohio like J.D. Vance wants, seem to be pretty similar. I mean, this rail bill, even before it was announced, it was pretty clear they were all heading in the same policy direction that they would like to update and make stricter a variety of rail regulations that they hope would prevent something like this in the future. Um, So there could be action taken at the executive level too, maybe on the regulatory side. There's been a lot of attention towards regulations around uh, transporting hazardous material that were um, uh, pulled back during the uh, Trump administration that may get re-examined now. But a lot of this can get done through legislation. And as you can see, there's definitely bipartisan momentum there. They're, they're not so far apart. 
And John, what about the people of East Palestine? Where does this leave them? Well, I mean, it does have some money in it for uh, for cleanup, but it, it 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 it's a lot of this is is locking the barn door after the horse has gotten out. I mean, this is um, uh, providing one one of the one of the provisions of this is that rail carriers have to provide advance notification um, uh, of what they're carrying on these trains as they roll through these towns. Um, but you know, it's not just small towns. This happened happened to have happened in a small community uh, in uh, in eastern Ohio. But trains carrying these hazardous materials roll through the biggest cities in America. And it's, it's not hard to imagine what would have happened uh, if this had happened in Chicago or Pittsburgh uh, or any other big city. My thanks this week to John Yang. John is an anchor for PBS News Weekend, a correspondent for the PBS NewsHour, Slate's Mary Harris, and Benji Sarlin, Washington Bureau Chief at Semaphore. Woke up, it was a Chelsea morning, and the first thing that I heard was a song outside my window, and the traffic wrote the words. Before we turn to the global edition of the News Roundup, we have one more bit of news from D.C., Legendary singer-songwriter Joni Mitchell was honored with the Library of Congress Gershwin Prize for Popular Song this week. Mitchell's friends and fellow musicians performed and paid tribute to her more than 50-year career, including James Taylor, Graham Nash, Herbie Hancock, Brandi Carlile, and Annie Lennox. Here's Lennox talking about the first time she heard Mitchell's music. The discovery of the lyricism of this poetry of her music and of the beauty, the power of it, was the revelation. There have been many singers that have inspired me, but Joni, as a singer-songwriter, as an artist, there's nobody to compare. Rose and flows of angel hair And ice cream castles in the air And feather canyons everywhere Mitchell is one of three women to have been awarded the Gershwin Prize since it was created in 2007. But now they only We'll be back with the International News Roundup, where we'll talk about some of the biggest news headlines from around the world after this quick break. We have a lot to get into. Stay with us. I've looked at clouds from both sides now, come up and down, and still somehow it's cloud illusions. It's been a busy week in world news. Today on The Roundup, a review of the results in one of the world's biggest elections. History will record that this day as the moment when I officially stood before you as a president-elect. To the latest in Ukraine and check in on the violence in the occupied West Bank and the political troubles of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Lots to get to. Joining us, David Rennie. He's the Beijing bureau chief for The Economist and co-hosts the podcast Drum Tower. Hi, David. Hello. Emily Rahala is the Brussels bureau chief for The Washington Post, covering the European Union and NATO. Welcome to the roundup, Emily. 
Thank you. Thanks for having me. And Idris Ali is a national security correspondent at Reuters covering the Pentagon. Idris, it's always good to have you. Good to be here. Let's start in China, where controversy over the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic has been revived. In an interview with Fox News this week, FBI Director Christopher Wray said an investigation points to the virus leaking from a lab in Wuhan. The FBI has for quite some time now assessed that the origins of the pandemic are most likely a potential lab incident in Wuhan. Let me step back for a second. You know, the FBI has folks, agents, professionals, analysts, virologists, microbiologists, etc., who focus specifically on the dangers of biological threats, which include things like novel viruses like COVID, and the concerns that in the wrong hands, some bad guys, a hostile nation state, a terrorist, a criminal, the threats that those could pose. So here you're talking about a potential leak from a Chinese government-controlled lab that killed millions of Americans. And that's precisely what that capability uh, was designed for. This comes after a new report from the U.S. Energy Department that the likely origin was from a lab, although that was reported with low confidence. Other U.S. intelligence agencies and departments are not in agreement with these assessments. The National Intelligence Council found the virus was likely naturally occurring. David, so with all of that in mind, what do we know about this FBI report? Well, we have to accept there are two debates that run in parallel. One is a technical, scientific, serious debate about where this virus came from, because that's important if we want to stop another pandemic arriving. And then there is a political, partisan, finger-pointing debate uh, between the United States and China. And you, you heard there the FBI director, Christopher Wray, setting out why he thinks that his contribution is part of the technical, scientific debate talking about the credentials of the virologists and the laboratories that are trying to, at the request of President Biden, to find out where this virus began. The problem is that because China controls so much of the data that you would need to sort of have a really complete scientific analysis, we are never going to get that technical debate ended. And so we are stuck with a partisan political finger-pointing debate, and that is China's game. And we saw the Chinese foreign ministry, as so often before, coming out and saying that the Americans are lying, that American intelligence agencies are liars and hoaxes, and immediately saying that the world should ask about whether the COVID virus perhaps came from American military laboratories. And they always named Fort Detchard uh, in, uh, in Maryland, which is a biological uh, research site run by the US military. And this is because the Chinese are trying to kind of distract and turn this into a finger-pointing political exercise. Idris, is that why U.S. agencies are so at odds when it comes to the origins of the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to sort of one of the broader points, which is that the United States um, just doesn't have the same level of intel capabilities in China that it once did. Um, you know, they've put huge amounts of resources into trying to figure out what happened, how the pandemic started, and you know, they're coming up short in terms of a definitive answer. And, and, and to me and to a lot of U.S. officials, it sort of speaks to over the past decade how human sources um, the U.S. intel agencies had in China are drying up. The Chinese are now more aware of it and they're weeding out um, collaborators or um, U.S. assets. And, and it's leading, leading to a lot of confusion in the United States. And I think, you know, Obviously, the pandemic's really important, trying to figure out what happened so it doesn't happen again. But it's a harbinger, I think, for the U.S. intel community about, you know, how do we figure out uh, 
what Chinese plans are with Taiwan, uh, what China's thinking with a number of different things. So um, this lack of intel capability, I think, is at the heart of this issue. And it's uh, causing a lot of concern for, for broader um, abilities of the United States to see what China's thinking and doing. Emily, what's been the view from Europe this week to all of this news in the U.S.? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, There's certainly interest here um, in what various U.S. agencies say about the origins of the pandemic. But the issue of the origins of the pandemic, while closely followed, has never taken on the same political cast in in Europe that it has in the United States. And I think there's a few reasons for this. Um, You know, I was covering the the search into the origins of the pandemic in in real time in the beginning of the, the pandemic. And uh, you know, it became a, a bipartisan political battle in the United States. And and that element of the debate is still there three years later. Um, so while there's there's interest here and it does make headlines, it's not really in the core of, of the conversation in, in most countries from what I've seen so far. Let's stick with U.S.-China relations. A new bipartisan committee on China did not mince words this week. Mike Gallagher, the committee's Republican chairperson, opened the hearing saying, quote, this is not a polite tennis match. This is an existential struggle over what life will look like in the 21st century, and the most fundamental freedoms are at stake. Idris, this comes soon after the incident with the Chinese spy balloon that the U.S. shot down. What sort of pressures do you see being put on the Biden administration from this new panel? Yeah. I mean, look, China has been at the heart of the United States national security strategy going back to Trump and even when Obama was leaving office. So it's it sort of been at the heart of it. The, the aim of this um, panel, the you know House Select Committee on Strategic Competition between the U.S. and China, or the Chinese Communist Party, is really about trying to convince, in their words, the American people about the threat posed by China. Um, you know, there's some parallels to the way January 6th committee was done. It's actually in the same room. Um, it doesn't have the ability to write legislation, but it really it's, its job is to draw attention um, to the competition between the two countries. And, you know... It, just because it doesn't have the ability to write legislation doesn't mean that it won't be able to put pressure because it's actually probably one of the few areas that is bipartisan. There are 13 Republicans and 11 Democratic members on this committee. So it's, 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 it's going to put pressure just by the fact that it's one of the few things both country or both parties can agree on. Um, and, you know, in this hearing, we saw the focus really be on human rights. We had Chinese dissidents in the room. Um, and we had two former Trump administration officials who sort of talked about what the Biden administration needs to do. I will say there is um, a bit of concern um, about the committee in that it might fuel more anti-Asian sentiments in the United States. And I think they're trying to be really careful not to come off at sort of a McCarthy era committee that's pointing fingers, blaming people, but trying to be sort of more um, inclusive and, and rather than blaming people saying this is why you need to care and this is what you, the Biden administration needs to, to change vis-a-vis Taiwan, vis-a-vis China human rights, um, decoupling of the two economies um, and, and those sort of things. To that point of dissidence, for the past couple of weeks, China has seen protests after making cuts to its healthcare system. Emily, these changes mainly affect seniors who have taken to the streets in what some are calling the white-haired movement. Why are these health insurance changes happening? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting story. I mean, I think the we need to see it in the context of, of two separate things. One is the sort of immediate 
post-COVID context of some economic problems in China, some some belt tightening by by the authorities, and then also the broader uh, economic context of China's aging population. So, uh, you know, on the first bit, we we see cutbacks to the medical uh benefits that pensioners can expect, rising costs for them. And this probably would have been controversial in any moment, but the recent context of frustration with the government certainly isn't helping. But the reason why I think it strikes a chord and it catches people's attention is because it calls attention to what might be China's biggest challenge in the years ahead, which is that you have this structure of the population with a growing number of old people being cared for by a shrinking number of young people. People my age in China tend to be, you know, if it's a couple, caring for four aging people by themselves. In the olden days, the care for the elderly was done by by families. And now the health system, China has tried to reform it to care for the elderly. And it's just the system has always been sort of uneven and weak. And now it's it's really straining. And for a generation that has had, in many cases, very tough lives, um, some of these protesters were retirees from iron and steel plants. Um, they did that work with the expectation of good good care or at least basic care in their old age. And I think the reason why we're seeing so much anger, in addition to the recent context, is the feeling that it's a, a violation of the, of the the social contract and their expectations for good health or ease in their old age. Top diplomats from the group of 20 nations met in New Delhi this week. The meeting of foreign ministers was marred by disagreements as Russia and China rejected a joint statement that called for an end to the Ukraine war. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken briefly met Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov on Thursday in the first high-level meeting in months between representatives of the two countries. U.S. officials said they talked for fewer than 10 minutes on the sidelines of the conference. Blinken addressed the press after the meeting. I told the foreign minister uh, what I and so many others said last week at the United Nations and what so many G20 foreign ministers said today. End this war of aggression. Engage in meaningful diplomacy that can produce a just and durable peace. President Zelensky has put forward a 10-point plan for a just and durable peace. The United States stand ready to support Ukraine through diplomacy to end the war on this basis. Relations between the U.S. and Russia are perhaps at their lowest point since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Idris, is the fact that these two communicated anything to be hopeful about, even if a larger agreement was not going to come out of this summit? Yeah, I mean, look, there's a general principle, I think, that's being followed, which is any chance to talk, no matter how short, no matter how insignificant um, the the talking points might be, the fact that they're talking is important. So from that respect, you know, I think it is good news that they spoke. It was the first time they've met since Russia invaded Ukraine um, more than a year ago. So that's the positive. Um, The negative is it it sounds like both sides, um, Blinken and Lavrov, both stuck to their talking points. Um, Sounds like they talked about things that you know, they talk about publicly and didn't really make any headway, not that any was expected. Um, I think there's also a lot of focus on the role Blinken is playing in the administration. He's obviously the Secretary of State, uh, essentially the Foreign Minister. But I think um, a, a better barometer is to see what someone like the CIA Director Bill Burns is doing. He's sort of taken on the role of the shadow foreign minister. And it seems like a lot of the talks that he's taking part in with his counterparts are the ones that have the real meat. So while it's good news that Blinken 
and Lavrov spoke, I think a lot of people are um, putting more faith in some of the secret efforts that are taking place behind um, behind the curtains. David, it's worth noting that when Lavrov spoke to the press, he didn't mention his meeting with Blinken. What did he say to the world? Uh, he wanted to talk about how Western uh, governments that are members of the G20 had turned the G20 into a farce. And he had this whole line about how they wanted to shift responsibility for their failures uh, in the economy. And he wanted to talk about uh, food prices and agricultural exports uh, that he blamed the, the West for blocking. Why is that? Well, because the argument from Russia, and I have to say also from China, which is basically repeating Russian talking points at the moment, is that they know that there's a lot of countries out there far away from Europe in places like Africa or in uh, South Asia, in Latin America, for whom the main impact of the Ukraine war is high energy prices and high food prices. And Russia and backed by countries like China have been pushing very hard that the cause of this is sanctions imposed on Russia by the West, basically to try and make the West the fall guy, the villain of this Ukraine war. And the sad reality is that uh, sitting here in Beijing, talking to diplomats here, there is some success for that argument. But that's why you saw Lavrov trying to change the subject from the war in Ukraine to appealing to the global South and saying the West doesn't feel your pain and we do as Russia. Emily, to David's point, 18 of the 20 members agreed to text condemning the war in Ukraine. Russia and China refused to sign. How long can the G20 function like this? Well, yeah, it's it's clearly not functioning very well. And, um, you know, we saw at the last meeting in, in Bali the same sort of dynamic where China and Russia were, in that case, pushing to keep the word war out of um, the comment on the war in Ukraine. And we see the same sort of dynamic again with uh, Russia and China um, playing a bit of a spoiler role uh, at these summits um, and really raising questions about the extent to which this kind of multilateral work can continue in a meaningful way. If you can't uh, issue a joint communique out of a summit, um, you know, not much is not much is getting done. And I think that that is likely to be a dynamic going forward and 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 shaping how this how these forums uh, work uh, in in months and certainly potentially in years ahead. David, where does India fit into this conversation, particularly when we think about its relationship between Russia, China, and the U.S.? That's a really fascinating question. And I think you saw uh, the Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, uh, who is using this G20, the fact that India is in the rotating uh, chair of the G20, as a huge thing this year. He's got elections coming up next year, and he's you know saying the world is coming to India. I am the host of all of these uh, leaders from around the world. It's a massive, massive kind of promotion push domestically. He has a problem, right, which is that he is getting closer to countries like America, uh, despite uh, India's longstanding kind of non-aligned position in the world and closeness to Russia, which has always been a close supporter and a source of things like weapons, arms and energy. But his closeness with America, which is caused by uh, India's concerns about China fundamentally, and so it needs a hedge leaves him in a very difficult position because he's not ready to cut ties completely with Russia. And so in this world where you have people like the American Secretary of State asking countries to choose between being on the side of the West and Ukraine and condemning Russia, you see Narendra Modi, who's trying to play this balancing act between countries like China and America, in a difficult position. And so he chose to split the difference by talking about the woes of the global South and saying that 
uh, that the real conclusion that he draws for the last few years is that global governance has failed and is not tackling the big issues like uh, climate change and pandemics uh, that are hurting so many developing countries. So I think he was trying to claim the moral high ground there to potentially distract from the fact that India has not condemned Russia and abstained in the big UN vote that Secretary Blinken uh, mentioned just then for the first anniversary of the Ukraine war. Emily, to this point of who's on which side and allies, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz is in Washington for a very quiet meeting with President Biden, not a state visit. Why is that? What's the story here? I'm not uh, I've been on a reporting this trip this week, and I, I, I'm not up to speed on his uh, latest plans. But I imagine that they have um, lots to talk about, specifically on the question of support for Ukraine and this very difficult question of uh, where does the Ukraine's allies, the U.S. and its allies in Europe and countries like Germany, where are they on the issue of uh, the end or cessation of fighting or peace. Um, this is something that has come up a lot uh, in, you know, it's been a part of the conversation since the beginning of the war, but particularly in recent months as the fighting has become more of a day-to-day grind, this question of, okay, we're supporting Ukraine, but how far are we taking that support and for how long? And that's been a big question as well with weapons. Idris, what does the U.S.-Germany relationship look like right now? Yeah, I will say I've been reporting on this and I still have no idea why Schultz is here um, under the radar. It, it, it's a bit bizarre for the leader of a country to come for less than a day, have one meeting, no press conferences, not traveling with any journalists. So it raises a lot of questions. Look, there's been a lot of frustration in Washington with Germany and its reluctance to give Ukraine weapons um, to the point where that started to bubble up and into the public in recent months. Um, It took the United States to agree to give their own tanks so that Germany could allow other countries to give German tanks. And I think that's caused not resentment, but a lot of frustration with Germany. We've seen that sort of slowly change. Scholz be more publicly open to give other type of weapons. And so I think the Biden administration is more hopeful, but that's a relationship that obviously for both countries is really important needs mending. And I think, you know, a visit like this outside public eye could maybe help that in a way that, you know, a public meeting, public press conferences and statements probably wouldn't. Let's switch to Nigeria. Its president-elect Bola Tinubu received his certificate as winner of the presidential election on Wednesday in Abuja. He called on all Nigerians to come together for the sake of the country. This great project called Nigeria Because to us all, it is bigger and more important than any partition divide. David, he's due to take office on May 29th, but it's worth noting he received only 37 percent of the votes, or nearly 8.8 million. That's the first time a president is taking office in Nigeria with less than 50 percent of the vote. How are the elections being viewed in Nigeria, and is it considered that these were free and fair elections? So the opposition is almost certain to take these results to court. And there are troubling uh, reports, credible reports that you saw uh, ballot boxes being uh, stolen, uh, votes being burned. The government had put an enormous amount and election officials had put an enormous amount of work into trying to convince the public that these elections could be held freely and fairly. And that's not just a nice thing to do in a country like Nigeria. Remember that 
as recently as 2011, when the opposition uh, said that a presidential election had been stolen, there were riots that led to hundreds, 800 people are thought to have died in those riots. And so Nigeria, a very large country, the most populous country in Africa with over 200 million people, this was a big deal to convince people that they could trust uh, government at this election. The problem is that the measures put in place, which included things like uploading to the internet and social media photographs of vote tallies from more than 100 and something thousand, 170,000 voting stations, there were lots of problems. Some of the voting tallies didn't look well filled out. Some of them were smudgy. There was also uh, reports of armed gangs going around holding uh, election officials up at gunpoint to make them sign vote tallies they didn't agree with. So it's murky. Why did the uh, winning candidate uh, only get 37% of the vote? It's partly because uh, he's a controversial figure. He's a kind of old style kingmaker uh, politician uh, who has been kind of moving behind the scenes for a long time. He used to be governor of the capital, Lagos. Um, but it was a three-way split as well. You had uh, a wildcard third-party candidate uh, from the Labour Party taking 25% of the vote uh, in the official figures. Opinion polls put that wildcard third-party candidate in the lead well ahead, although the problem with opinion polls is that not that many people uh, take part in them in Nigeria. The really sad thing for some people, I think, is that the turnout was incredibly low, that only 25% of registered voters did vote. And Nigeria is an unbelievably troubled country. You have large areas of the country that are essentially racked with violence that are not really fully controlled by the central government. And it's amazing under that sort of in that context that the ruling party won again. And I think that will lead to accusations that this was not completely clean. Yeah, it's an interesting thing to we'll continue to watch there. Moving to plans for another election, on Wednesday, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan indicated his government still intends to hold elections a month earlier than schedule. That's despite the earthquake last month that devastated parts of southern Turkey. Şunu iyi bilin ki bu millet inşallah vakit geliyor 14 Mayıs'ta gereğini yapacaktır. Erdogan didn't provide information on how the elections could be organized in the quake zone or say whether displaced survivors would be able to cast ballots in their new locations. The Turkish leader, who's been in power since 2003, is seeking a third term in office as president. And in Mexico, tens of thousands of protesters took to the streets in Mexico City on Sunday in opposition to proposed changes by the Mexican president to electoral law. President López Obrador dismissed their concerns Monday and called the protesters, quote, thieves and allies to drug traffickers. David, how would these changes affect uh, elections in Mexico? I mean, they're a big deal. And it's uh, we've had hundreds of thousands of protesters across dozens of cities, even though actually... Uh, Andres Manuel López Obrador is pretty popular. He's a populist. He's not uh, the kind of leader that America hoped to see elected in their giant neighbor to the south. But he has consistently 60 percent, 60 percent plus approval ratings. He's a kind of populist uh, leader with a big following, particularly among poorer and more rural uh, Mexicans. But he has a grudge against an election commission that was created when uh, essentially Mexico has only really been a proper democracy since about 2000. Uh, with a long-time ruling party, finally lost. And he has a grudge that in his first attempt to become president, he won, he, he lost very, very narrowly. And he thinks that he's always accused the election commission with no evidence of being behind that defeat. So now he's basically slashing the budget. He's closing local offices. He's cutting back training. And he's also reducing the criminal sanctions for candidates who break election law. And so 
you're seeing a remarkable number of Mexicans coming out and saying, you know, don't steal our votes. And this is a rare kind of uh, show of widespread uh, protest to him, for, given that he is basically very good at playing the populist card. And we're seeing him again playing the populist card and saying that uh, the funds that he's cutting from the election commission would be better spent on the poor and attacking America, although America was frankly incredibly mild uh, in expressing concerns. And uh, you saw the State Department say that they you know, they respect Mexico's sovereignty and, and respect these demonstrations as proof of democracy. And you saw AMLO, as he's known in Mexico, coming straight out and saying, we have more democracy in our country than in America. Idris, how is the U.S. navigating these protests, given our relationship with the Mexican government? Yeah, no, that's a good question. And we saw the um, Assistant Secretary of State, Nichols, um, come out and, you know, try to come up with a very balanced answer. And, you know, the U.S. basically said, look, the electoral reforms that you're talking about are really testing the independence of the election process and the judicial um, institution. And, And like David said, you know, the U.S., doesn't want to get involved um, in domestic politics of any country and, and definitely doesn't want to appear to be putting its weight behind, you know, one issue or another. Um, and so they've been talking more in generalities, which is, you know, the U.S. supports independence of institutions, strong electoral reform, um, people's voices being heard. And so like with many countries around the world, what we're seeing is the U.S. trying to balance um, the need for elections and reforms, but not getting too involved. Right. Brian Nichols, the U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs, tweeted this, quote, the United States supports independent, well-resourced electoral institutions that strengthen democratic processes and the rule of law. And let's move to the occupied West Bank, where violence continues to erupt between Palestinians and Israeli settlers. Last night, Israeli forces shot and killed a 15-year-old Palestinian boy in the occupied West Bank. The Israeli defense forces say troops were searching for suspects they believe were launching fireworks at passing vehicles. Two others were wounded and another child is in critical condition. Sunday night in the town of Hawara, Israeli settlers torched dozens of homes, businesses, and cars overnight. Palestinian residents described the damage they woke up to the next morning. At night, settlers attacked us. I saw them. When they burned the car, my mother went down with a bucket of water to put out the fire. They burned the container, burned the warehouses, burned the storehouse for electrical appliances, and destroyed the house. On Monday, a Palestinian gunman killed an Israeli-American motorist in the occupied West Bank. The victim was visiting Israel for a friend's wedding when he was killed. David, the tally so far for 2023 is 64 Palestinians and 13 Israelis have been killed. What's behind this most recent upswing in violence? Well, a number of things have changed. I mean, I, listeners could be forgiven for thinking, you know, oh, my goodness, just more kind of misery, more kind of killings on each side. Uh, you know, how to make sense of this, how to how to work out if, you know, this means anything at all. I think it does mean something, uh, in particular because the politics on the Israeli side uh, have changed so dramatically with the election, the re-election for, you know, the latest time, uh, Bibi Netanyahu, and this time with, you know, the most right-wing uh, government in Israeli history made up of parties with some extremely strong views on their right to have settlements uh, in territories that Uh, the rest of the world or many other countries in the world consider uh, illegally occupied. And this is causing enormous problems, not just domestically, because we're seeing, uh, uh, you know, seeming 
kind of nodding and winking from government ministers from some of the most extreme parties uh, seeming to endorse uh, the mob violence that, as you described, went through this Palestinian town after the latest uh, killing of a settler. Uh, you saw the finance minister uh, seeming to say that the aim was to show that the master of the house is on a rampage and people should watch out, uh, saying that the town in question should be erased. Uh, and, you know, that kind of inflammatory rhetoric, which seems to have a, a senior Israeli government minister endorsing mob violence, um, you saw the American administration having to respond because the Biden administration, uh, which tries to sort of uh, be pro-Israel, supportive of Israel, but also trying to keep the peace there. You saw the State Department come out and say that the finance minister's comments about erasing that Palestinian town were irresponsible, repugnant and disgusting. And that is really strong language uh, from the American administration uh, for any Israeli government minister. And so I think you can see that not only are we in one of these periodic cycles of violence, which does grip the Middle East. But there's a sense that you now have government ministers in Israel throwing fuel on the fire, in addition, we should say, to Palestinian groups uh, throwing fuel on the fire. But this is a very, very combustible situation. And that strong language you hear in Washington, I think, shows the real degree of anxiety uh, in the Biden administration. Just staying with Washington, Idris, the Lloyd Austin, uh, the Pentagon chief, plans to visit Israel, Egypt, and Jordan soon. Army General Mark Milley is in Israel right now. Why is America's top military officer in the region, and how significant is it that the defense secretary will also be there soon? Yeah, look, just echoing David's comment, I mean, it is remarkable that the State Department came out and said what they did. Um, And they just never want to be in a position to criticize Israel um, so publicly and so forcefully. And so it just speaks to how bad the situation is. Um, so the, the, the visit um, by Defense Secretary Austin had been long planned. And, and really their focus for the national security apparatus in Washington vis-a-vis Israel is Iran. Um, Iran is seen as an existential crisis for Israel. Um, Netanyahu, who is particularly hawkish on Iran, and that is what they really want to focus on. Um, the issue is, uh, even with the defense secretary going there, the focus is really going to be on internal Israeli politics. We're seeing protests against Netanyahu on the streets because of um, some of the judicial reforms he's trying to enact through parliament. Um, and so while the focus uh, for the defense secretary and for uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley, is going to be Iran, I think, at least publicly, a lot of questions will be about how they can work with a government that is so, so far right, even by Israeli standards. On Sunday, a boat carrying more than 200 migrants sank in rough seas off the coast of southern Italy. At least 62 people are confirmed to have died, 12 of those children. Many did make it to the shore alive or were rescued, but many are also still missing. The sunken ship was carrying migrants from Afghanistan, Pakistan, Somalia, and Iran. The prime minister of Italy, Giorgia Maloney, said in a statement, quote, It is inhumane to exchange the lives of men, women, and children for the price of the ticket they paid in the false perspective of a safe journey, end quote. Maloney is a far-right leader who was elected this past fall. She's promised to stem the flow of migrants into Italy with tougher policies. Emily, how do you see this tragic shipwreck fitting into the policies of migration in Italy and Europe on the whole? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm, I'm, I'm struck, as you described, the, the absolutely horrible scene of this shipwreck of dozens of people dead and including children, that this is an image that we've seen before and unfortunately we will see again. This problem, the um, the the 
absolute um, inability to de- deal with this problem at both the Italian and the European level is something that has been happening for years and seems once again to be coming to something of a breaking point. I think what's interesting in terms of um, you know a possible way forward or not is that this particular shipwreck happens at a moment when the migration question of asylum seekers is back on the EU agenda, at the top of the EU agenda, after several years of, of after the pandemic and after several years of sort of um, fading to the sidelines um, from a policy perspective, certainly not in terms of the people making that trip. And what we're seeing is a, a, a point, a rare point of convergence among the EU member states that something has to be done, but very little agreement on how to move forward other than an agreement that they want to move towards more hardline policies. So we're seeing, you know, the same EU countries who once condemned Trump plan to build a wall meeting to talk about how they might, you know, fund border walls. Um, We are seeing calls um, from some member states to move forward with the kind of externalization plan that the UK experimented with or tried to. Uh, That would be, you know, setting up asylum seeker processing centers in somewhere like Rwanda. So as as we're witnessing these tragedies day in and day out, we're seeing the EU move towards a more hardline um, position on migration more broadly. Some claim that that could stem uh, the the movement of people by boat. Most human rights groups and others, um, including refugees themselves, suggest that 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 is not, not a way to stem people making this dangerous journey. Let's stay in Europe and turn to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now in its second year yesterday, Ukraine reported Russia lost nearly 151,000 troops so far. Casualties are high, but the war grinds on in the city of Bakhmut in eastern Ukraine has been burning this week under constant gunfire and explosions. Idris, how close is Russia to seizing Bakhmut? So Bakhmut is important uh, in the sense that it would be the first major um, victory for the Russians since their invasion um, a year ago. And in terms of how close are they, it seems like they're pretty close. They've surrounded three of the four um, roads Ukrainian troops and civilians could take out um, of the city. Uh, so it, it does appear that they're, they're, they're pretty close. And it's not just Russian troops, it's Wagner forces, which are sort of the, um, the, 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 the private troops that Russia uses. And so when you combine both of them with artillery fires, um, some airstrikes as well, it, it appears that um, sooner rather than later, Russian forces will have control of it. Um, you know, Bakhmut was a city of 70,000. Strategically, um, US officials say it's not particularly important, but the impact it's going to have on the mentality, um, the the public relations that Russia can use in terms of saying, look, we have finally achieved something you know, can't be understated. The Ukrainians um, are setting up some defensive positions right outside the city. So what they're hoping is even if they have to leave Bakhmut, um, they can, you know, stop the Russians from advancing um, well past it. Emily, just big picture here. Is this, uh, when we're, as we're talking about Bakhmut, does this sort of change the conversation of it being a stalemate, this war? Yeah, I mean, you talk to one person and you'll get one analysis, talk to another, get another. But I think that what the grinding um, pace of fighting in this particular city, um, it, it, it raises the question of how does this end? How long can this go on for? Right now, it does seem that Russia is making um, 
mo- modest gains. Things are not looking particularly good on the front line for the Ukrainians. But um, e- even if if Russia was to take the city, um, there's not really a sign at this point that that would change the overall um, dynamics of the war. That is a prolonged fight over a small amount of territory. And that raises some really tough questions about you know, how does this, how does this end? How does this come to a conclusion? We're seeing um, some, this is, as we mentioned earlier, we're seeing some calls for a, some type of arrangement, a ceasefire that would be a cessation of violence as opposed to a peace, something along the lines of, of, you know, what we, what we have in the Korean peninsula, but others strongly oppose that idea, um, particularly Ukrainians and many others. At the same time that some are calling for that type of arrangements, we see uh, Western officials, Ukrainian allies, moving increasingly towards language around Ukrainian victory, you know, which suggests a fight, you know, to the end until all t- territory is retaken. So, so this this battle has really become a a focal point for conversations around what comes next for Ukraine and what looks to be a very long conflict. Let's turn to one final complicated story, one of the many fallouts of Brexit. This week, the UK and Ireland struck a deal known as the Windsor Framework. David, the seal will remove customs checks for goods moving to Northern Ireland from the rest of the UK. That was imposed after Brexit. Can you explain to our listeners what this means? Yeah, maybe if listeners imagine the kind of the map of you have uh, Britain, England, Scotland, and Wales, and then you have the island of Ireland. Of course, the north of Ireland is part of the United Kingdom. The south of Ireland is Uh, its own country and is still part of the European Union. And so when Britain voted to leave the European Union with Brexit, that created a land border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the European Union. And that was going to be a big problem because once you have a land border between the EU and a non-EU country, you need a hard border. You need fences and customs checks. But that border is so politically sensitive because that's where you had all of the troubles uh, with terrorism and the IRA that were painstakingly overcome in the 1990s by removing those border controls and making it a very porous border between the two halves of Ireland. So the idea of having to put a hard border back in was seen as disastrous for the peace process. And among other people, you saw President Biden saying very clearly that America would take a very dim view. So then you have to put the border somewhere because you can't just have goods flowing into the EU from Britain with no controls at all. So essentially a border legally appeared in the middle of the Irish Sea, but that very much upset those people in Northern Ireland who don't want to have any separation from the rest of the UK. When Boris Johnson was prime minister, he fudged it. He blustered and he lied and he said that there wasn't going to be a border. And he was just simply that he would break international law uh, to fix this. His successor but one, Rishi Sunak, has on, has very fortunately turned to part of practicality and seriousness and has done a deal. What they basically said is that a lot of goods coming out of the UK on ships going to Northern Ireland, are not going into the rest of the EU. They're not going into the south south of Ireland. So let's call them green channel goods. They won't be checked. Only goods that are going from Britain uh, to Southern Ireland need to be checked. And that takes away a lot of the controls. It's a practical compromise. And the fact that the British government, the Irish government and the EU were able to come to this compromise, I think, shows you there is some hope that now Boris Johnson is gone, uh, that uh, British politics is trying to wrestle with the immense practical dis- difficulties of Brexit as opposed to just wishing them away in a kind of magical bluster, which was Boris Johnson's solution. We're almost out of time. But Emily, does this has this deal been blessed by both sides in terms of is this a win? Is this going forward for British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak? Well, it's it's certainly a, a win for now for Sunak. And the EU side is also praising it as historic. 
the deal is not totally done. Um, the the DUP and uh, still says it wants to review the details, but certainly um, in this long, messy uh, drama that stretched on for years now, this is um, a step forward in a, a a very thorny issue that looked uh, immovable for many years. So I think there's quite a bit of cautious optimism for now. But uh, with Brexit, there's there's always a surprise. So let's see what comes next. So let's end with one final bit of news, not about the world, but off-world. This week, the European Space Agency announced that space organizations are considering how best to keep time on the moon. For now, a moon mission runs on the time of the country that's operating the spacecraft. European space officials said an internationally accepted lunar time zone would make it easier for everyone, especially as more countries and even private companies aim for the moon and NASA gets to send astronauts there. A big thanks to all my guests today. David Rennie is the Beijing bureau chief for The Economist and co-hosts the podcast Drum Tower. Emily Rahala is the Brussels bureau chief for The Washington Post covering the European Union and NATO. And Idris Ali, national security correspondent at Reuters covering the Pentagon. As always, we appreciate your time. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior supervising producer. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Nyla Boodoo, in for Jen White. Thanks for joining us. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A.